We're going to be in two places today, so you might put your finger in Matthew 19 and then flip over to Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Matthew 19 and Genesis 2, 24 and 25. We'll be flipping back and forth between those two passages as we look at the culmination of creation, the magnitude of marriage. Two weeks ago, we looked at the creation of the world. And we said, with powerful words, the creator of the universe, or better yet, the king of the universe, created the earth good and for good, that God is sovereign and his creation is spectacular. Last week, we saw that with a potter's touch and with a surgeon's skill, this covenant-keeping king created man and woman with the capacity to serve him, the responsibility to enjoy him in a community of worship. And to help you better understand that, one last visual to see how the two accounts of creation uh, complement one another, just as man and woman complement one another. There are one crea- there's one creation account from two angles, and you have a handout in front of you, and Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 kind of builds the pyramid from the ground up and it grows more and it goes more in chronological order day 1 day 2 day 3 day 4 day 5 and day 6 if you wanted to you would color day 1 and day 4 the same because they are the same panel of light day 2 and day 5 they're the same panel of water day 3 and day 6 they're the same panel of land so you see it in chronological order and you see it build up to the pinnacle of creation and then if you were to turn that pyramid on its side and get a top view so you can see it there is genesis 2 4 through 25 in the three panels the capacity to serve god on earth the responsibility to enjoy god with its accountability and it ultimately points to a community of worship to a community of worship that as god created the earth He put it together in a specific form and it all led to something and that is the worship of Him. You can see the language in Isaiah 66 verse 1 that the heaven is the earth's throne and the, excuse me, the heaven is the Lord's throne and the earth is His footstool. It's the idea that the earth is a temple, a place of worship and that is what Eden was supposed to be, a place of worship. And so, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 walks us chronologically through the creation account and we twist it and look at it at a different angle. It is not a separate creation account. They aren't contradictory, but we flip that pyramid over so we can see the point of it. The capacity to serve God, the responsibility to enjoy Him, that He gave the fruits, He gave all the trees, yet one, that we should enjoy Him And then it ends with this community of worship that man, it is not good for man to be alone. And we saw last week, he made a helper. And we said that that word helper is a divine term. God uses it in very self. And so today we're going to look closely at those two verses in Genesis 2, 24 and 25. And we're going to look at how that came into existence. The outline we are going to follow is marriage is from God. It originated with him. Marriage is through God. It was outworked to him and through him. And finally, marriage is for God. Everything in the earth is for God. And we will see that all of our marriages are to point to God. And 
we break that down first, and the foundation is set by God. If you look at Matthew 19, verses 3 to 5, you read this. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. The Pharisees are testing Jesus by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, in the back of their mind, they've got Deuteronomy 24 trying to trap Jesus. They're testing him. And Jesus answers, Have you not read? And pay careful attention to this phrase in your Bible. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said. And said. He who created them from the beginning, he did two things. He made them male and female and said. And then Jesus quotes what God said in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so the beginning of the foundation for marriage, not only the first marriage between Adam and Eve, but for all marriages, is that God spoke marriage into existence. God spoke marriage into existence. He who created the male and female and said, Moses wrote it, But Jesus believes that God was the one who said and spoke marriage into existence. There's your first principle of the foundation of marriage. God spoke marriage into existence. Second principle, God spoke marriage into existence as the culmination of creation. Flip back to Genesis 2, and you see in verse 24 the first word, therefore, or for. That you begin in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you get this light, water, land panel. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, and day 7, He rests. And from a different angle, you see these are the generations of the heaven and the earth. And that He makes man in the capacity to serve Him, the responsibility to enjoy Him. And it says, it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, therefore... Everything is leading up to this point. Man is not supposed to exist on an island by himself. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. And there's no such thing really in life as any person who totally functions on their own. Even monks in monasteries gather other people around them because it is in their DNA as God created it that they need community. And so God says, therefore, that is the culmination of creation is this community to worship. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The idea for marriage is not just out there somewhere. The idea of marriage came from God. For from him are all things. The idea of marriage is from God. This makes your marriage, my marriage, all marriages magnificent. They're from God. And marriages not only are from God, they didn't just originate from Him, but they are through Him. Look back at Matthew 19. And the Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And He answered, Have you not read... Here's the first thing. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. God the Creator 
made the man and woman. We talked about that last week. That in 127, we see that both male and female are created in the image of God. That makes every single person in this room, every single child in our children's church, literally every single person on this planet special. They're created in the image of God. We should never, ever look at one other human being and look at them negatively. They're created in the image of God. C.S. Lewis said, if you could see the drunkard on the ground in his infinite glory, in his image of God's status, you would want to fall down and worship him. God, the creator, made man and woman. He made man and woman in his image, 127, and he made the man to work and keep the garden, 215, and he made the woman to help him. He made the woman to help the man. That's what the Bible says. And if you weren't here last week, let me catch you up. Helper, God calls himself the helper of the orphan and the widow, the helper of those who are persecuted. In Psalm 121, where does my help come from? It comes from God. So helper is not a negative term. God, the creator, made man and woman. Now you flip back to Genesis 2. And in verse 22, it says, In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And we talked about that last week, if you weren't here, that he did not take uh, Eve from the hair of Adam's head so that she could top him. She didn't, he did not take Eve from the bone of Adam's foot so he should trample her. And those are the two key issues in life today. When marriages go awry, it is a woman who's trying to top the man or it's a man who's trying to trample the woman. Now, it may not be physical abuse, but it could be a man's trying to control and lead and not lead with love and compassion and grace like Jesus Christ. And it may be subtle for the woman, but she always wants to get what she wants and she will work any situation to hold it over the man. Those are the two issues today. Simple. But he made her from the rib so that the man could put his arm around her to lead, provide, and protect her. God the Creator made man and woman. He made the man to work and keep the garden. He made the woman to help him. And in 22, at the end of that verse, if you were to read it without all the other verbiage, it says, the Lord God brought her to the man. The covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, Elohim, brought her to the man. So if we have God the Creator making man and woman, we have God the Father giving away the first bride. That if we were, as we were standing here earlier, you would see God walking Eve down the Eden Isle, right down the middle. And thirdly, you would see God the pastor performing the first wedding. Look at Matthew, back at Matthew 19.6. Matthew 19.6. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Sure, you're remembering, maybe you were reflecting on that this week, back to your wedding day. Sure, you exchanged vows. Absolutely. Sure, there was, Lord willing, a pastor like myself there 
guiding you through those vows? Have you ever you've been to those weddings where where the the big guy, six foot, standing there, he's usually right here. He's got her hands and you say repeat after me and then his lip starts to quiver. Because he's looking into and to the love of his life. And he repeats those vows and you guide them through them. And you guide them through this exchange of rings and you're always paranoid, wondering, am I going to be that pastor who drops the ring and it rolls down the aisle? And Sure, you exchanged covenants and vows. Sure, you exchanged rings. Sure, there was a pastor there guiding you through the process, but it is God from the beginning and every time from them. It is God who joins you together. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God the creator made man and woman. God the father gave away the first bride and God the pastor performed the first wedding. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. One man takes one woman. It does not say, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and take multiple wives. It does not say, a woman shall leave her father and mother and hold fast to another woman whom she calls her wife. One man takes the lead. He leaves his family unit. One man takes hold of one woman and they together form a new family unit. One man, one woman joined together in covenant commitment. That's what that's talking about. When he leaves his family unit and he cleaves or joins together with his wife, it is a covenant commitment. It is not a contract that you sign and negotiate. You know, if it just doesn't work out, we've got a clause in here. It is a covenant between one man and one woman that God performs. No, it is not polygamy where there are multiple wives or husbands. No, it is not a homosexual relationship, women with women or men with men. No, it is not friends with benefits, right? There used to be a time where living together was looked down upon. But then we had shows like Three's Company. Hollywood's got an agenda. And they just make it just kind of innocuous. Hey, it's just one guy living with two girls. It's no big deal. And and there was a time where infidelity was uncommon for any sort of person Yea, even those in public office. But we get indecent movies like Indecent Proposal, and we don't know what his is. It's not friends with benefits, and it's not just partners in agreement. Common law marriage may be legal, but it's not biblical. It's not just partners in agreement. We agree to live together and have kids, it's not biblical. And this usually involves either a passive male who doesn't want to commit or an aggressive female who does not want to submit. It's not polygamy. It's not homosexuality. It's not friends with benefits, partners in agreement. It is one man taking one woman in covenant relationship. And the man, one man, and his wife, one woman, were both naked and not ashamed. They were without covering. They were completely vulnerable. They were not ashamed. 
They were not afraid of each other. They were not afraid of God. They were without shame. They were without any guilt. More on that next couple weeks when we look at Genesis 3. There are two ways to handle guilt. There's misplaced shame. It's feeling shame for something that is is in and of itself not a dishonoring to God. And then there's well-placed shame, feeling guilty for doing something you know you shouldn't have done. That is well-placed shame. If I speak harshly to my wife, if I exacerbate, uh, speak harshly to my children, if I uh, don't speak kindly to you, I-, I should feel guilty. If I miss a penalty kick in Mexico... When the game is on the line and I missed the penalty kick that lost the game in the tournament, I can feel some sort of grief or embarrassment or frustration, but that's, that's not a guilt of shame. Or if I show up to a party, I mean, why are you guys so underdressed? Wearing what's inappropriate, I may be embarrassed, but that's no reason to be guilty or ashamed. And these two had none of that. No guilt. Completely vulnerable. Able to live with one another without hiding anything. Man and woman in the image of God created complementary to each other, just like the accounts of creation. One is chronological, one is topical. They fit. So man and woman fit together. They fit together, and we could go through it. They fit together physically. Think about it. They fit together emotionally, intellectually. They fit together. That is how God designed it. And they are joined together as the basis, catch this, of all society. He spoke animals in their herds into existence. He spoke stars and the billions of them and their formations into existence. He formed man, he fashioned woman, and he brought them together as the basis of all society. If we want to change society, we we must change the church. If you want to change the church, you've got to begin with families. And if you want to begin with families, you have to start with marriages. And if you want to start with marriages, you have to start with the men and women in those marriages. This is why you have heard and will continue to hear the term biblical manhood, biblical womanhood repeated over and over. And you may get tired of hearing the term biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, but it's that crucial. Because if we don't know who we are as men, men, and ladies, if you don't know who you are as women, then we will not come together and have godly marriages, which will mean that we will not have godly families, which will mean we will not have a godly church, which will mean we will have no impact on society. Our marriages are far greater than we think. Our marriages are far greater than we think. But something went wrong. After Adam and Eve and even including Adam and Eve. This is one of the most profound paragraphs on marriage I've ever read. There never has been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. The chasm between the biblical vision of marriage and the common human vision is now and always has been gargantuan. Some cultures in history respect the importance of the permanence of marriage more than others. 
some like our own, have such a low, casual, take-it-or-leave-it attitudes towards marriage as to make the biblical vision seem ludicrous to most people. Now, the benefit I have of speaking this morning is you don't think this is ludicrous, but those who may hear this or sharing this with non-believers, they'd say, that's just corny. Really? You're really trying to say marriage goes all the way back to creation? I'm not trying to say it. I am saying it. It's that profound. My wife is not here today. She's taking care of our sick youngest son. I know some of your spouses are helping out in children's church or sick themselves. But if your spouse is here, that person next to you, that person next to you, outside your relationship with the Lord, is the most important relationship on earth. More than your children. It's that important. God did not begin with little kids running around. He began with one man and he began with one woman coming together to form a community of worship. To, in essence, show us the Trinity. You're making that connection? I I am, actually. I'm going to make that connection. Because in 1 Corinthians 11... It says, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. And if you go to the Trinity, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Equal. All divine. Everyone has every attribute of the other when it comes to divinity. All-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful, yet there's an order. God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And the most powerful influence, catch this. Obviously, they all work together as one, but the one person of the Trinity left here on earth, God is in heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of God, waiting for the final instructions from God. Jesus has always and only been submissive to his Father. Sons, young children, And the Holy Spirit is left here, residing inside us, working. That's the Trinity. And over here you have Christ, who's the head of man, who's the head of woman. Okay? We'll take Christ out of the illustration for now. Man and woman, made in the image of God. Absolutely equal in creation, in sinfulness. Yet the way God has ordered it is that Christ is the head of every man and man is the head of every woman. That is how God originated it because he understood that we needed a community and we needed some sense of hierarchy. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a leader. That's always how it has been. And you never ever hear the Holy Spirit complain. One, because the Holy Spirit is sinless and understands his position. But two, God the Father and God the Son have never given him anything to complain about. But something went wrong. And in chapter 3, through the rest of the Bible, until Revelation 19, marriages are always in flux. Marriages are in flux. They're either good or bad or a combination of both. 
there was a very good beginning in Genesis 2, 24 and 25. But then there was this sadness of sin-filled marriage. Just skipping through, touching the high points of Scripture, Genesis, or excuse me, Judges 21, 25. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes, which led King David, the great King David, to have seven wives. It didn't say seven back here. Which led his son, who saw that and didn't, didn't learn from that, to have 700 wives. Which leads to the end of the historical accounts of Nehemiah in, in Jerusalem still dealing with this very core issue of being united together. And in the middle of that, I'm sure you're seeing this in your small group, there is a story of hope in the midst of heartache. It's the book of Ruth. Men, we want to be like Boaz, worthy men. Women, you want to be like Ruth, worthy women, where each person is living outside themselves for the glory of God and living steadfast in loving kindness, finding favor over and over again. You see that mentioned. In the poetry, you see it captured in Proverbs 18.22. I always would begin weddings with, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And I'd look right at the guy, said it over and over because it's always true, so I'm not lying. Look right at him, well, thumbs up, and say, and there was usually no pulpit, you know, right here. You have found much favor, brother. <laughs> right? Men, you have found, nod your heads, you have found much favor. Amen? Amen? And then there's the Song of Solomon. It's the, it's the best it can get. But it, prophecy ends in Malachi with this idea of divorce. And that's where we began in Matthew 19. These Pharisees trying to capture Jesus. So this, this attitude towards marriage hasn't changed. And then Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians. He gives the order the create, based on creation. In Ephesians 5, which we'll look at in a minute, gives us the responsibility. Colossians matches that. And 1 Peter gives us that equality. Peter calls man and woman fellow heirs of the grace of life. But though it begins good and, and kind of goes downhill with a few glorious marriages... At the cross, it's made new, and it starts to point us to that one time where it will end. Genesis 2 and Revelation 19. The man, the first Adam, failed, but the second Adam didn't. And this second Adam will bring his bride with him, the church. And so the flow of marriage from begins in the New Testament with God, a perfect marriage in a perfect house, perfect community, perfect situation for worship it ends in divorce and it awaits reconciliation and then it looks forward to that one day where jesus christ will come and take his bride and so sin affected the way we view marriage and so we belittle it as it was said in that paragraph we we it's casual let's take it or leave it i was listening to a song last night It's amazing how people can make songs the one you love so much that it becomes the ringtone for when your wife calls and then that same artist 
will put a song together about marriage and he says, and I quote, hey, let's just go out tonight and do something dumb. Let's get married. Dumb? Dumb? No. Divine. But sin affected that. And so we look at marriage as dumb. It's take it or leave it. It's a contract. Can't work it out. You sign your prenup. I'll sign my deal. We'll just go our separate ways and we'll make movies called Irreconcilable Differences. The world we live in and myself and all of us, I think to some degree, are tainted by the culture we live in and we don't value marriage. It's the way God presents it. It's the culmination of creation. It's one man, one woman living in ecstasy, in delight with one another trusting their God. Well, let's look at the redemption of this and what your marriage is to the world. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Just quickly, we'll look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. In verse 32... Excuse me, verse 31. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, let's set the context so you see the whole thing, who we are in Christ, repeated seven times in verse chapter 1, who you are in Christ. Chapter 2 says you individually were dead in your trespasses and sins and you were saved by Jesus to become one new man and joined to the church. Chapter 3, he just says, this mystery is the gospel. Chapter 4 says, let's live in unity. Chapter 5, let's be imitators and walk in love. And then in 5.15, it says, look carefully then as how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, And so he's going to tell you what the will of the Lord is for the primary relationships in your life. He will begin always with that person who is to be the helper and follow and then go to the one who is to lead and protect. So he says, wives. And then he says, husbands. He says, children. And then he says, fathers, which is, should send a message to us, fathers as parents. And then he says, slaves and masters. Women, children, slaves, husbands, fathers, masters. In the world, if Genesis 2, 24 and 25 is like the blueprint, and Ephesians is like the model, the world wants to do one of two things. We, we don't even want to go by the blueprint. We want to change it, or we're going to tweak it along the way. Or for those of you who are younger and don't understand blueprints, if Genesis 2 is kind of the outline and a coloring book of what should be. And then Ephesians gives you the color. We want to color outside the lines. We want to change the picture. So we're to walk wise and we're to do what it says because that's knowing what the will of the Lord is. And nobody would argue, and this is what I would say, being more of a confrontational evangelist to those who were in Sunday school, to those who would deny there is our roles 
There's a leader and a follower, a worker and a helper, biblical terms. I would say you who want everything to be 50-50 or not, right, that's the way you should do it with your, your kids, right? If you're just going to follow that logic, that's the way. If, it's, if there's not a leader and a follower and wives and husbands, then, then let, let's let the kids decide what you eat for dinner and when they go to bed. And if you're an owner of a company, let's just not lead and give direction. Let's just let everybody decide. It doesn't work that way. Business owners know that, although they lead with grace and, and they lead with compassion and, and they value others' insights and they learn from them, but they lead the organization. And parents, you discern your children well and you know that you can talk to this one in a one way and you know that this one all you have to do is look at them right do you have kids like that where you have to talk to one and then all you have to do is look at the other i just i just have to look at lawson just look at him lauren we 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 discuss So we discern our children, but they still need to be led. Business owners, parents, and why does that change when we get to, to husbands and wives? It shouldn't. Wives, submit to your own husbands. It's not a bad word. It's a negative term in the feminist culture that we live in. It's not a bad word. Jesus Christ. Ladies, if you want to be conformed to the image of Jesus, Romans 8, 28. You want to be conformed to the image of Jesus is which you were predestined, you were chosen, you were justified to become formed to the image of Christ. Catch this. Jesus Christ only and always, only and always submitted to his Father. I have not come to speak my own words, but those which the Father gave me. Jesus Christ never worked on his own. And at the end of time, 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. You mean Jesus is going to continue to submit to God to the end of time? That's how I read that text. It's it's not a complicated text. So when it says submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, that's not a negative. That's Christ-like. And then he explains it. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Jesus was just modeling for the church what they should do. And when women submit to their husband, they're just modeling for the world how the church lives with Jesus. And then the men, that's 22, 23, and 24. The ladies get three verses. The men get five verses because we need to hear it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means you live sacrificially. 
And I often say when I'm doing a wedding, I know, I know that you would take a bullet for her. I know that. But to live sacrificially means you put your agenda under hers that you live and you live to wash her by the water of the word to you're now the leader as she is conformed to Christ. And so to sacrifice, if, if she likes to do certain things and she's been working all week and would like to go out to eat, but you get home from a long day, I would say, take out your wallet. I would say, say a prayer. God, give me the strength. And you take that woman out to eat. That's how you sacrifice, men. And you, your responsibility is that she's washed having been cleansed by the washing of the water with the word, that Jesus might present to himself the church in all splendor. Men, you're going to present your wife to God. So if I'm not paying attention to how my wife's walk with the Lord's going, that's my fault. I've got to present my wife holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Men, it's sacrificial and it's sensitive. You know what? You know when there's a tweak in your IT band and you need to stretch that? You know. So as sensitive as, as you are to your body, be that to your wife. How are you doing today, sweetie? I notice this. What? Tell me what's going on. Talk to him, and that happens as you talk. It's an, it's an amazing thing when you talk to your wife. You find out so much. No one ever hated his own body, but he nourishes and cherishes it. You see the context: sacrificial, sensitive, leading husbands. Submissive wives who help their husbands and they go forward together. And Paul says, and he concludes this section of that book on how we should live together in community. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus believed in Genesis Paul believes in Genesis. Judd believes in Genesis. Heath believes in Genesis. Ben believes in Genesis because that's what it says. When, and if Paul meant it, that's good. But when Jesus believes in Genesis and he's a, he's a man who died and rose from the dead, I'm following him. If Jesus would have said, ah, that's just, you know, they're just using the language of the day and that's just, you know, because we can't really tell about evolution. If Jesus would have said that, I would have gone, oh, okay, that's an option. But he didn't, and neither does Paul. But Paul takes your marriage, he takes my marriage, he takes all marriages, whether begun by God through a church or down at the JP. He says this, this mystery is profound. Mystery? Mystery? It's what he says. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to.
to Christ in the church. The it there is talking about Genesis 2, 24 and 25, verse 31. What I'm saying is marriage is a picture of the gospel. The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ that one man came to secure a bride and he's coming back for her. That's the picture of every marriage. It's not that marriage is a nice illustration that Paul used. The idea of the term mystery up until this point that hadn't been connected to Genesis like this. It is a revelation that marriage is from God and it is for us and it is about the gospel. Our marriages and how we view them and how we live them out are little parables of the gospel. So husbands, are you Christ-like? Women, wives, are you like the church? Are you living your life in such a way that neighbors say, there's something different about that couple? Or have we just fallen prey to casual, take it or leave it, may not work out? Well, we know we can't do that because that, you know, the the scarlet letter today is not an A, but it's a D, divorce. We don't want to do that. So we'll just, I'll just just be a maid or I'll just be a butler and you just be a maid and we'll just, we'll focus on the kids. That is the most unbiblical notion of any couple. That would drive me bananas if that's why I was in my relationship with my wife. I'll have you know, Lawson is dear to me. Luke is one of my favorite people to be around. Lauren is precious. Lauren's got a new Bible. She holds that thing just up against her heart. and She's awesome. But Ashley, I can't even talk about it. You want to know who a picture of God is to me? Ashley. Do you know who I want to spend time with today? It's Ashley. Do I like to go running with my friends? Sure. Do I like to hang out on Friday nights with the guys sometimes? You bet. But that woman, when we're together, And when we're both repentant because we're not perfect and we're complimenting one another, I'm working and tending the garden in Eagle. You believe that? I believe it. She's helping me. And we're fruitful and multiplying, not just physically but spiritually throughout the earth. That's where I want to be. It's not just, oh, we have to go do this. Oh, I can't wait. She met, she saw me, because before I put this on, I had to make sure it fit. She saw me and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to miss this. Probably because she just wanted to gaze at me and whatever. 
I said, well, honey, I'm coming home. (laughs) Our marriage is a display of the gospel. Do you get that? Because when we get that, it changes everything. It changes the way you view your wife. It changes the way you view your family. It changes the way you view the church. Marriages aren't just nice illustrations. It's a revelation to us, says Paul, of the gospel. Now, you may be thinking, and I know some of you are in college and you know people, what about singles? How do we understand singles in the midst of this idea of marriage? I mean, does someone have to be married to be a fellow heir of the grace of life? Jesus was single. The most complete person who ever lived never married. The most complete person who ever lived. No sin, total integrity, always in perfect relationship with his father. Struggled like us, yet without sin. That most complete person was never married. Never married. I had the privilege of teaching a group of young singles for seven years. And this is what I would always say to them. He was never married. Mark 12, 25 talks about a woman who had been married and then her husband died in this whole situation and Jesus settled it. They're not going to be married in heaven. I don't know what that relationship is going to look like, but they're not. That's what Jesus said. She was married, then her husband died, and then she got remarried. And he said, they're not married in heaven. And Paul makes a case for both in 1 Corinthians 7. To the married, I say, to the unmarried, I say, Singles who never marry are the undamaged, unmarried part of the bride, the church of Christ. So singles who know Jesus, who aren't lacking, when they become grafted in, they're a part of the church, which is a bride. So in some sense, they will partake of a greater, and that's the point, of a greater marriage supper. And so... After Ashley and I said, I do, which people tell us that we were swaying the whole time, you know, just rocking back and forth. Okay. We had a feast, which we'll have a family providence coming up. And that's what's going to happen at the end of time. And the singles will be a part of that bride when the bridegroom comes and will sup together. But some want to change the blueprint. Some want to change the outline. If they don't like it, they just want to build, rebuild and redraw the blueprint. And that's why we're having so many discussions about, well, what does marriage really mean? Can it be, can it not be between two? And, and we're starting to get just, we lessen terms. We don't ever, we don't no longer call it women's rights. Now we're calling it women's health. Because we know when we start getting into that whole right aspect, there is a little baby inside that belly who has just as much rights. And I say, where do you draw the line? The baby outside the womb couldn't survive on as much on its own just as much as the baby inside the womb. So we don't call it women's rights. Now we're calling it women's health. And now we won't call it marriage. We'll call it partners in agreement. Because we, personally, I believe, we don't want to sit, reflect on, and adjust our lives to the truth. And if you were here four weeks ago, we realize this is the most reliable book in history. Everybody's learning from some book somewhere. I'm going to learn from this one. From him, 
through him, to him. If we're going to change society, we have to have a strong church, strong church, strong families. Adam and Eve were to multiply and fill the earth. And so a church multiplies through discipleship and fills the earth. That first marriage is built on a covenant. Ours is built on a covenant. Marriage is meant by God to put the gospel reality on display in the world. That is why we are married. That is the end of this book. This Momentary Marriage by John Piper. This is how he ends it. That is why we are married. That is why all people are married, even when they don't know and embrace this gospel. It's to put God's glory on display. And it's to declare the gospel among the nations. Last week, we looked at God's glory. This week, I want to finish with those three other glories I mentioned. There's stewardship glory, that we are to take care of what God's given us. There's community glory. You see that in Genesis 2. You and I were made for relationships. Adam wasn't meant to live alone. Adam wasn't meant to be Adam's best friend. The community that Adam and Eve were meant to live in with one another was designed to be the beginning of a huge web of interdependent human relationships that would define much of the focus of energy of people's lives. Human beings' lives were meant to transcend the narrow glories of independence, autonomy, and self-sufficiency. We were created to have lives shaped by a constant pursuit of the glory of humble, dependent, community, and that's all built upon truth glory. God's words contained in the Bible contain the knowledge of Him, the meaning and purpose of life, the moral structure for living, the nature of human identity, the fundamental human job description, a call to community, and a call to divine worship. Never were Adam and Eve built to exist on conclusions drawn from their own experience. Right? The scientific merit of scientific method of evaluating life or the concepts revolting, resulting in autonomous interpretations. Every thought was meant to be shaped by the truth glory he would patiently and progressively impart. God's seemingly mundane act of communication in the garden was in fact a call to transcendence. It is a call to above and more. It's an above and more way of living. It was a call to Adam and Eve never to shrink the size of their thought down to the size of their thought. You and I who are married in this room are called to something magnificent. Our marriages originated with God. They were performed by the Creator, the Father, and the Pastor, and they're to Him. They're for His display. How are we doing How are we doing? I'll just be honest. There are days when I don't look like Boaz. Not a worthy man. I get caught up in my own little world and my own little things have to be done. And it's about me. And the size of my world shrinks down to about the size of whatever's in front of me. And I'm not Boaz. So I'm not living to give favor to my Ruth. And so I repent and say, I am not sacrificial. I am not sensitive. I am not like Jesus. 
And there may be some of you ladies in here who don't hit it every day and you shrink the size of your world down to your world and you're going to get your way no matter what. You need to repent. And you need to go to the, to the bridegroom, the ultimate bridegroom, and ask him for forgiveness. And then if you have to need to go to your husband, you ask him for forgiveness. And when you get two repenting people living together, oh, it just gets fun. Did you get that two repenting people <laughs> living together? Our marriages are magnificent. God spoke it into existence. It's the culmination of creation. He ordained it. He ordered it. And the outworking of it should be to spread the gospel to the entire world. Father, it is a privilege to call you Father. And I thank you that we can open your word and see that you you are the creator. That you were the first father in the truest sense of giving away your daughter. And that you are the first pastor, the ultimate pastor, and you sent your son Jesus to be the chief shepherd. You know how to perform marriages. You know what each and every marriage in this room, in this building, in this city, in this valley, in this United States, every marriage in the world, because you are sovereign Beyond all our comprehension, you are spectacular. You made us special and specific. You know every single marriage. And so my general prayer for the entire world is that you would help men and women see how they are not imaging you or your son in their marriage. And I pray specifically for myself and for every person at Eagle Bible Church that has been joined together in holy matrimony, that you would help them see where they fall short of your glory that you would enable them to walk in love and compassion toward one another, that they would repent where they need to repent. They would encourage where they need to be encouraged. I pray that we would never look at our marriages the same. I pray that Valentine's wouldn't just be about chocolates. Father, I pray that it would be about maybe renewing that one relationship that is permanent until death do us part. I pray these things in Jesus' name, the ultimate bridegroom, sensitive to his bride, sacrificing for her, so that when he comes to get her, we the church might be with him forever. It's in his name I pray.